Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time in episode 51, we're going to talk about how to approach your van build now that you have a van. Assuming that you have a van. We're also going to talk about octane and what those numbers mean and what you should do for your van. A tale from the road that frankly gives me the creeps. A product review of the UCO candle and a place to visit involving lots of cactuses. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us here for episode 51. This episode is going to have a couple of different things in it. We're going to have our first submitted Tales from the Road, which I'm going to read, and you'll understand when I do. We're also going to have an ad. I know everybody hates ads, but this podcast does cost me a little bit of money every month, and I should offset that somehow. So I'm going to have a little bit of an ad in the middle. Not a big deal. Not going to change anything in the nature of the podcast. And heck, you actually get something free out of it. So we'll get to that. Okay, we're going to assume that you have finally found your van. You're done. Now that you have your van, it is the best van. It is exactly the van you want. It is yours. But don't feel overwhelmed. Well, all right, I can say that, but that's not so easy. You generally will have an idea of what you want, but getting there seems so far away that it's hard to know where to start. So I'm going to go through the steps that I took and how I built out my van, and hopefully that will help you get an idea of what you need to do. I had an old professor who I didn't get along with very well, but he did have this one good witticism, which was divide until trivial and then conquer. Anytime you have a big problem that seems insurmountable, just chop it into little pieces. You might not be able to eat a 10-ounce porterhouse steak all in one bite, but if you cut it up into little bites, you can get through it. At least I can, and with some gusto, I might add. So the first step is to figure out what you want. Make a list of the things you want in your van. What do you want to be able to do in your van? What kinds of things do you have? Now, you may not actually get the things on this list. You might change these things, but you have to start somewhere and that's the starting point. Do you want to be able to take a shower in the van? Or do you want to just have a way to deal with showers? Do you want a toilet in the van? How many people do you want to sleep in there? Do you want to have heat? Do you want to try to have air conditioning? Although I'm telling you that is a large hurdle to get over. All those things, make a list. And don't be afraid of being a little bit grandiose. A big list of things that are hard to attain is okay, as long as you understand that you might not be able to get there. If you have a list that just says, well, I need a place to sleep, that's not going to help so much. Now that that's done, put that list away and go sleep in your van. Yes, really. Go spend a night in your van empty. Bring a sleeping bag, bring a pad, bring some cardboard boxes, do whatever you want to do to be comfortable in there, but no permanent building. Just go spend a lot of time in your van. And you know what? It's going to suck. Yep, it's not going to be your favorite time in the van. When I did this, I bought my van in February, and I immediately had to take a trip from Chicago to New England. So I put a cot in the back, and I had some plastic drawers, like from the dollar store, and I put them in back, and I had a water jug and a bowl, and I didn't need a cooler because it was freezing. And I went out on this trip, and that first night in the van was cold and wet and miserable. And I thought to myself, why am I doing this? But then I thought, huh, 
I should do this, and I should put this here, and wouldn't it be nice to have this? And that is the point of this exercise. You go through this one or two nights of sock, and you are going to have such a great perspective on what you need and what you want to do that it's going to inform the whole rest of your build. I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's no fun. Sure, you can just do it in your driveway if you want to, but do it. It is so valuable. After you get back from that trip and have a good night's sleep, hopefully, take some time to sketch out what you want. Now, you don't have to use any of the fancy software. I mean, Simply 3D, there's all kinds of software out there that will help you build your van. You can be as fancy as you want. But honestly, if you've got a piece of paper and a crayon, you've got all you need. Try to figure out where you're going to put things. Where's the bed going to go? I recommend you start with the bed because, as I've said a few times lately, the bed is the most important part of your build. If your bed is uncomfortable, the rest of your build almost doesn't matter. So start with your bed. Do you want to go horizontal or lengthways? How high do you want it? Do you want the bed to be removable? Do you need the bed to be expandable? Where is it sometimes just for one person, sometimes it's for two? Or maybe it's for two and a couple of dogs? Or whatever your situation is. Sort that out first. And then once the bed's done, then we can move on to the other stuff. Start thinking about where your wires and pipes are going to go. Okay, you've decided you want to put your sink here. That's great. Where's the water going to go? Where are the tanks going to go? Generally, the waste tanks will go under the sink somewhere. Are they going to be in a cabinet, or are you going to mount them underneath the van? Figure that out. How long are your pipes going to be? Where are those pipes going to run? Because you need to know that stuff before you start putting in furniture. Also, you need to know where all your wires are going to go. At this point, you want to decide where are your lights going to be, your outlets, all that kind of stuff. Are you going to have an inverter? This is a good time to decide that, because then you need to know where you're going to put your 110-volt outlets if you have them. When you do this, if you can, try to place your wires in a way that they can be replaced or added to. You can go so far as to install conduit, and then you can actually fish wires through. What I did in my van was I put a plastic conduit in certain places that would allow me to run wires from the floor to the ceiling, and then all around the ceiling. And that would basically give me the chance to expand as much as I wanted. As it happens, I haven't needed to, but it's nice knowing that's there. Remember, at this point, we haven't got a floor, we haven't got walls, we haven't got a ceiling, and we don't have any furniture except the bed, maybe. So keep in mind how early in the process you want to know where all your lights are, all your switches, where your battery and all that equipment's going to be. And when you're doing this, try to keep in mind weight. It may be very convenient for you to put the water tanks and the battery and all that stuff right behind the driver's seat. But if you're driving the van alone, you literally have a van that has all its weight on one side and the other side has nothing. That's not great. Vans can handle this better than some other vehicles because they're generally designed to handle cargo, but you are going to be so much better off if you can somehow distribute the weight. When in doubt, put the weight on the passenger side, or if you can, centered in the vehicle, low to the floor, just in front of the back axle. That is the best place to have weight. So if you have a bed design that's horizontal and maybe you have a garage under there, think about putting your water tank and batteries somewhere over the back axle, just in front of it, or near the center, or as close to that as you can get. 
and try to keep as much of your weight down on the floor as possible. No, this isn't always possible. My van has a horrible weight distribution. I have my water and batteries in the same cabinet right behind the driver's seat. It is not a good design from this perspective. But it's a very good design for livability because it opens up a bunch of space. I have an easy way in and out of the van, and I decided that was more important. Another good thing is to have an anchor piece of furniture. And by that I mean it's a piece of furniture that you are going to put in and everything else is going to conform to it. So we've already talked about the bed, the bed's in. That next piece of furniture can either be something you build or something you buy. In my case, it was a bunch of Ikea, Eket, or Eket cabinets that were modular that I sketched out in a shape, and that was going to be my anchor. And it was, and because I made it modular, I was able to move it around a bit. For you, it could be that. It could be a dresser you found in a thrift store. It could be a metal set of shelves that were already in there. Something like that. But once you have that anchor piece of furniture, you'll notice that everything else starts falling into place. And I found it to be super useful. That piece of furniture I recommend should be able to handle whatever cooking you're going to do in the van, which you may not do any, and whatever water you're going to have in the van, which again, you may not have any. The whole time you're going through this process, keep going back to your list and making sure that you include everything on the list. Because I'll tell you what, I forgot something very obvious. I didn't leave any space at all for a refrigerator or cooler or anything like that. And that has been the bane of my build, trying to find a place to put the refrigerator. I've sorted it out now. I'm on version three at this point. I moved a bunch of stuff around and it's fine. But boy, I wish I had thought of that sooner because I spent many, many hours unscrewing things and moving things around. So make sure you keep going back to your list so you, you maintain that context. Now you have to make a decision. Are you going to do a floor on the entire van and then build on top of that? Or are you going to or are you going to build the floor around the furniture? You can do either. My advice is to just build the floor the entire length of the van. It's just so much quicker than to cut out every little corner and go around everything. It costs a little bit more materials, but we're not talking about a big area here. So in my opinion, you should do the whole thing. And then the next decision you have to make is insulation. Insulation is such a heated topic that I'm not going to get into it very much. Some people say you don't need insulation at all. Some people say you need to cover the entire van with soundproofing and then three layers of insulation. Yeah, there's a lot of different schools of thought. It's my belief that you need at least some insulation to prevent condensation. If you have questions about that, ask me. I will help you out. But it would take literally three more episodes just to go through insulation. Okay, you figured out your floor, you figured out your insulation, you've got your anchor piece of furniture. Now you're ready to actually start building stuff. You want to make sure you've put all the wires in that you can that are going to be covered by furniture or wall covering or, or ceiling or whatever. The ceiling can be tricky, right? How are you going to put stuff up there and then put the ceiling over it? So I mounted my lights in my ceiling, which are these like puck lights before I put the ceiling up, but I had the wires in the ceiling. I had to put the ceiling in the van, attach the wires, and then put the ceiling up, which I'll tell you is much better a two-person job. Doing that by yourself is no fun, at least with my ceiling, which was a solid one-piece ceiling. If you're doing tongue and groove, it's a bit easier. And the same with plumbing. Make sure all your pipes are in place that you're going to need. 
And then this is the order I believe is best. Don't do the floor, don't do the ceiling, do the walls first, because that's going to be the messiest thing you do. You're going to drip glue or paint or whatever on the floor of the van, and you don't want that to get on the nice floor. So do that first. I covered mine with four-way stretch carpet. It took a very long time. There's a lot of that four-way stretch carpet that's behind furniture that you can't see, and I am fine with that. It was much easier to do it that way than to try to do carpeting only on the place that you could see. Then do the floor. At that point, after your walls are in, do the entire floor, and I think you'll be in good shape that way. And then finally, do the ceiling. In fact, the ceiling should be near the last thing you do. There's a few reasons for this. For one thing, the ceiling is a place where you can make adjustments to wires and stuff. And the other thing is that you may need that height in there to be working on things, especially in a low-top van. Don't eliminate your height until the last minute. And that's it. I mean, obviously, you've got a whole bunch of other stuff to do. You've got to put in the sink. You've got to install the water, all that. You're going to do that. That's fine. That stuff just kind of follows. You don't need step-by-step -step for that. But after you've got your van mostly finished, because, folks, no van is ever completely finished, take a trip and don't go far. Do it in your driveway. Go to a local park. Go stay at a relative's house. Do something very, very small because you're going to find a whole bunch of things to fix on that first trip out. You're going to find cabinet doors that bang into each other or don't open smoothly or pop open while you're driving. Or maybe the floor is crooked or the ceiling falls down. All that stuff is going to happen. It's all normal. Do not freak out about it. It's very easy to build your van, drive down the road, and have all these things go wrong and think that you're a complete failure. Why did I ever do this? I don't know how to build vans. There's stuff falling everywhere. Yep, that's part of it. You know what? It happens with the professional builders too. It doesn't happen with every van they build, but it does happen in the prototype. That's why they have prototypes. And unless you're an experienced van builder, every van you build is going to be a prototype. So expect things to go wrong and have an attitude that you're going to fix them. Make sure when you head out on that first trip, you have your emergency kit that I talked about a couple episodes with stuff you need to fix the inside of the van and all your tools and the phone number of somebody who can come help you if things get terribly desperate. Those are the basics of how to approach a van build. My goal in telling you this was to take that big, huge mountain of, holy cow, how am I ever going to do this, and break it down into these little hills that you can come over. And no, you don't have to take any of my advice, but you can take that approach of chopping it into pieces, and you're going to find that you can do it. You can overcome lack of money and lack of skill with determination. When you start this project, know that you're going to finish it, no matter what, and you will. Let's talk about octane. You know what it is, sort of. I mean, you go to the gas station and there's three different pumps, right? In most of the country, you have one that's 87, and then one that's 90 or 91, and then one that's 93. And the prices are different, but what actually is the difference? It's also important to know that sometimes that price difference is huge. In Chicago, typically, the price difference between the lower octane and the higher octane is a full dollar. So if you get 20 gallons of gas, it's $20 more for that higher octane gas. Is it worth it? Typically, no. Higher octane means gas only burns at a higher temperature, which is good for your engine. Also, many of these companies will put extra additives in their highest level of gasoline that helps keep the engine cleaner. 
Those are good things. The more octane you have, the more gas mileage you get. That is also good. But your engine is probably designed to take 87. It's in your owner's manual. You can check it out. Higher performance engines, engines that have what's called a higher compression ratio, they tend to need gas that is of higher octane. If you buy higher octane gas than your engine needs all the time, you're probably wasting money. That little bit of extra gas mileage isn't going to offset the extra money you spent, especially in a place like Chicago. Those additives, well, you don't need them all the time. If your engine is a little bit older, yeah, sure, maybe run a tank of high octane through from time to time. Also, you may have noticed that as you go west in the country into the higher altitudes, those numbers change. Suddenly, 85 is the lowest one rather than 87, and 90, oh, suddenly that's the fancy gas, where back east, that was just the mid-range gas. That's because at higher altitudes, you don't need as much octane. But more octane is still better. So it's kind of an efficiency thing. It actually costs more money to produce gas with a higher octane. Check your owner's manual. Mercedes is the only van I know that maybe wants higher octane than 87 on a regular basis. If you know of another one, let me know. But that's all you need to know about octane, really. You're usually fine buying the cheapest gas possible. I found an app that makes it dead simple to buy and sell stocks, even if you don't know what you're doing. And that app is Robinhood. I've used it for years without a hitch. No contracts, no hidden fees, no gotchas. When you open your account, they give you a free stock. That's right, one share of a publicly traded company will be yours. It could be a big name like Apple or Google, but more likely it'll be a smaller stock like Zynga or Sirius. And they'll give me a stock too, which helps keep the show going. There's a link in the show notes, but the URL to give it a try is join.robinhood.com slash jeffw118. If you decide it's not for you, sell the stock, keep the money, and close your account. Easy peasy. I promise to only promote products that I use and trust, and Robinhood is one. If you have a different experience, please let me know, and thanks for giving it a look. Tales from the road. All right, this tale, well, I'm just going to jump right in here. This is something got an email from from somebody asking me to submit this and they were kind of anonymous about it i emailed them back and the email didn't work so mike which i know isn't your real name if you can hear this get in touch with me so i can send you out your swag bag because i really appreciate you sending the story and it's a doozy now i'm basically going to be reading the email that he sent me assuming it's a he you'll see long time listener first time writer as this story involves some sketchy activity, I've changed a few things and made myself anonymous. You can refer to me as Mike on the show. Thanks for the show, by the way. Well, thank you, Mike, for listening. A couple of years ago, I had a job that was basically house-sitting at construction sites. I'd stay the night in my van and make sure everyone had what they needed. It was chill, and sometimes I'd ask my partner to join me to hang out nights. This particular night, she said she didn't feel like it, so I just did my thing. But at 9 p.m., she said she was feeling lonely and asked if she could come out. I said sure and gave her the address. I went about my stuff, and about an hour later, I got a text that asked for the address again. I gave it to her. The GPS can't find it. I thought that was strange, since it was on a main street in a town not far from a major city. I tried to text her through it, but her responses didn't make much sense, so I called her. What she told me was strange. She said the GPS kept talking to her, but wasn't making any sense, and that she didn't know where to go. 
I asked her where she was. I'm next to a big truck. It's red. Are you at a truck stop or a rest area? Can you see any landmarks? No, there's nothing here except this truck. It's running. Her voice was odd, and at this moment I thought something was wrong. I asked her a series of questions, trying to find something to find her. How long have you been driving? Did you pass a McDonald's? Do you remember any street signs? I saw something that said Smith Exit or something on the highway. Well, that wasn't much to go on. I jumped on Google and plotted what should have been her route. I went through all the interchanges along the way and found something called Smith Road. So I knew she'd made it past that point, but it still wasn't enough to find her. I knew I had to find her because she was getting less and less coherent. I put the phone on speaker and started heading towards Smith Road. As we talked, the conversation got more bizarre. She kept saying that all she could hear over the phone was da-da-da-da or thump-thump-thump-thump. She wasn't able to answer my questions. So in my clearest and firmest voice, no yelling, I said, Hey, it sounds like you've got something going on with you. I want you to park, turn off the car, and wait for me. I'm coming to get you. Where should I park? The truck is gone. Right where you are should be good. I had no idea what was going on, but it was something, and I was heading towards the only thing I knew, Smith Road. I'd be driving on the interstate on the other side of the road, so I hoped to see her car. If I got to Smith Road and didn't see her, I'd turn around and start looking around at each exit. And if that didn't work, I'd call the police. Lucky for me, she had a distinctive car, a little Jeep with a custom top that was easy to see. I was hoping that would be enough for me to spot her. A conversation got more and more disjointed, and she finally hung up on me. I got all the way to Smith Road, but there was no sign of her. I took the exit and headed over the interstate to start heading the other way when I saw her, and I nearly shit myself. She had stopped her car right in the middle of the exit ramp. Not on the side, right in the middle of it. If a semi had taken that exit at speed, it wouldn't have been able to miss her. I pulled off the road near her and rushed to her door. She seemed confused, but completely unaware she was in grave danger. As fast as I could, I got her into the van, put on the seatbelt, and asked her to sit still while I moved her car. I moved the car and hopped in the van to find out what was going on. She didn't know. She assured me she didn't need any medical attention, and during the course of our conversation, I learned that she'd been drinking, no surprise, and she had just started a new medication that might interact. And yes, they did interact. She was terrified of anyone finding out, so she refused to let me take her to a hospital. Not knowing what else to do, I wrote a hasty note saying the car would be gone by morning, put it on the dashboard, and then had to figure out how to deal with her, her car, my van, and my job. I hit on taking her to a hotel in the van. I put her in a room and made sure she was okay, but took the keys and then Ubered back to her car. Telling the Uber guy how to get to an exit ramp was its own adventure, because these things don't have addresses. That accomplished, I returned her car to the hotel, checked on her again, and went back to my job in the van with her keys. When the night was over, we had breakfast and talked about what had happened. She agreed to reconsider her drinking, but I'm not sure she ever realized how close she came to spending the night in jail, or much, much worse. Stay safe out there, Mike. Well, Mike, I have to give you credit for your resourcefulness in finding her, and I'm very glad things turned out all right. 
wow, what a situation. And I think, if anything, it goes to show how important it is to have a cool head whenever dealing with things like this. And it sounds like you did. So so kudos to you. And yes, try to get in touch with me, and I will send you your swag bag. And if you have a story like Mike's or not like Mike's, please, please send it to me. I know I'm begging at this point, but that's where I'm at. Okay, product review. I'm going to review the UCO candle. Now, I've had one of these things for years, and it's basically a candle lantern. And it's kind of cool. It collapses into this little tiny compact unit. And they sell them with these special candles that are super high density and last nine hours. But they're still not very big. They're like the size of half a carrot, say. Lately, they've been selling these things as not only a light source, but a heat source. And in my experience, you know what? These things are pretty good. You're not supposed to use candles in tents or in any kind of enclosed vehicle, really. But these are as safe as they could possibly be. They're covered with glass. If it tipped over, they're designed so the candle will go out right away and nothing is hot enough to actually ignite anything at that point. So if you're the kind of person who likes candles, these are a good option. They come with a handle so you can hang them off of a hook. And like I said, you can close them up so they're super compact, they'll easily fit in your pocket. Lately, they've come out with a three candle version, which I haven't used myself, that they advertise as being able to provide heat as well. Well, I'm sorry, but there is a little bit of physics involved here where you're not going to get more heat out of a candle than it can produce, and three candles is not going to be enough to, say, keep your van toasty warm. But it might be enough to kind of rub your hands next to and warm up your hands from time to time. Let's say that you were doing some ice fishing or something like that, and you needed to have a place to just kind of warm up your hands a little. It might be good for that, but I think there are many other solutions that would be better. But if you're looking for a candle solution that is rugged, meant for this type of thing, and is time-proven, the Ucko candles are great. I'll have a link in the show note that's UCO. I don't actually know what that stands for. Um, but they're also very expensive. They're, the three-candle version is $30, but they're windproof, they're tough, and they look kind of cool. A place to visit. I love this place. I've been there a few times. It is Saguaro National Park, or forest as some people call it, because after all, why wouldn't a group of saguaros be considered a forest? Now, if you're not familiar with the term saguaro, these are those cactuses that look like they have arms. Not the organ pipe ones. They typically have two arms, and you'll see them in any cartoon of the desert. It's as though the cartoonist has to put one of these in there to say, oh, it's the desert. But in reality, those cactuses are only found in a very limited range. If you go to Colorado, you're not going to see any unless someone planted them there. They're really only found in the Tucson, Arizona part of the country and then going down into Mexico. And they were highly endangered because they take a really long time to grow. And people used to use them for target practice and they would cut them down to let cattle graze in the area and all kinds of things. They're really cool. They're majestic. There are all kinds of animals that live in them, such as there's a, a species of owl that lives just in the saguaro. It kind of drills a hole in there and makes a nest. And they look otherworldly. So this winter, if, if you're looking for a place to go to get away from people that's warm, I highly recommend Saguaro National Park. It's not far from Tucson at all. You have all the services in the world there, and there's lots of space just to drive around or hike around. But don't mess with the cactus. 
people will get very angry with you, and sometimes the cactuses fight back. There's a story of a man shooting a cactus with a shotgun, and the cactus fell on him and killed him. So don't do that. Also, if you want, you can actually buy little baby saguaros and bring them into your van and try to grow them. But know that the biggest of these that you're seeing are hundreds of years old. I'll have a link in the show notes, because you might not know how to spell saguaro. Okay, Q&A. I got a lovely question from Beryl. Thank you very much, Beryl. And it was basically, how do you charge your laptop without an inverter? This is a very interesting question. If you have an older Mac like I do, or if you have an older PC like I do, they may require 19 volts. That's typically the output of a normal laptop computer from the brick. You don't have that in your van. You've got 5 volts, you've got 12 volts, you don't have 19 volts. And while you could buy a device that would just up the voltage, you're probably going to use an inverter to charge these laptops. Now, the good news is is that you don't need much of an inverter. You don't have to go out and buy a 1000 watt pure sign inverter. You can get by with a crappy $15, 100-watt, plug-it-into-the-cigarette-lighter inverter, and that will charge your laptops. That brick that comes with the laptops does a lot of stuff. It conditions the power and makes sure it's right. If you look on it, it will give you a range of voltages, and usually you can take them overseas and plug them in there, and they work just fine as long as you can get the plug in. They are very, very forgiving, and I have had no problems charging my computers with, it's actually a Radio Shack brand, and mine is a 75-watt inverter. It works fine. Now, some people say that if you don't use a pure sign inverter for these transformers, you will damage them over time. That hasn't been my experience, but I want to put that out there just in case. Also, in the future, when you're going to buy a computer, if it is going to be primarily used in the van, I highly recommend you buy a laptop that is USB-C charge capable. The new Macs use USB-C. Microsoft Surface tablets use USB-C. The new iPads use USB-C. All of those, it's very easy to charge USB, and that means you can use 12 volts and you don't need an inverter. So thank you very much for the question, Beryl. I hope that's helpful. And I hope someday you get a new computer that doesn't need 19 volts. Well, thank you very much for joining me here for episode 51. Just a quick reminder, we do have a Facebook group. It's called Built to Go, a Facebook group, and you can find that, yes, on Facebook. I would love to hear your feedback about any of the changes we've made, whether it be Tales from the Road or the addition of the advertisement. And music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. Remember, until next time, remember the Land Rover motto, as slow as possible, as fast as necessary.